0: God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Have you heard those words before? Perhaps by a preacher, a friend. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. At first they're sort of appealing, you lap them up. Until something in life doesn't go the way you planned that unforeseen tragedy, that relationship (laughs) breakdown, that shattered dream, that gross injustice, that ongoing temptation, that unexpected and traumatic abuse. And we begin to question it. We come to the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, and if you were to tell him as a teenager, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, he would have believed it, lapped it up too. And yet the story, his story, the plan for his life, he would have every reason to question it. That this plan doesn't seem all that wonderful. So the question is, does God really love me? If you've ever felt that, If you've ever thought that, if you're going to that right now, Joseph's story is a story for you. Now, the story of Joseph is well known. In fact, there's a musical about it. Just finished playing at the Capitol Theatre. Moses gives more time to Joseph in the book of Genesis than any any other character. Just a quick bio. Jacob is his dad, renamed Israel. We saw last week. And he had 12 sons, and the second youngest is Joseph. Now, Joseph, as the story kicks off, is is a young teenager, about 17 years old. He's young, he's fresh, he's got a lot of life to live. But like most families in Genesis, he is from a very dysfunctional one, right? Open your Bibles, turn to page 33, chapter 37, verse 3, we kick things off. Now, Israel, aka Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age. Now, favouritism, as we've been seeing, is a horrible thing. Some of you know what it's like. Well, your brother, your sister, they were favoured above you because they were smart. They did the right job that your parents liked. They were good and you were not, whatever it is. And you carry that hurt. There's a lady, Rhonda, who I know, she always felt like her two older sisters, their dad loved them more than her. And one day she asked her dad about it. And he said, looked her in the face, said, oh, sure. I know, it's because you're not as pretty as them. She never recovered from those words. They haunted her for the rest of her life. It's one thing to know you're not the favourite. It's another thing to be told it. And for Joseph's brothers, they heard loud and clear from their dad that they were not the favourite. Because verse 3, dad made Joseph an ornate robe for him, and just him. I'm going to burst a little bubble here. The Hebrew in that word, phrase, ornate robe, is very hard to work out. It's, there's a footnote in your Bibles to show that. We normally translate it as a technicolor dream coat, full of lots of colors, right? But to be honest, it probably should be translated a coat that had long sleeves, Right? which I know is not an exciting musical name, but you know, Joseph and the long-sleeved coat, right? It's not as catchy. But the point behind this ornate robe in Jacob giving it to his son was he did not have to work. His brothers did. He was given special treatment and exempt from the responsibilities. And the result, verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, They hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now, you know what I find baffling about this? This is Jacob. Jacob, who knows personally the hurt of not being your favorite. Isaac, his dad, loved Esau more than him. He gets it. He's lived it. He knows it. And yet he's doing the exact same thing to his own sons. Just a parenting moment, right? Just because, I mean, the things your parents said that for many of us you hated. You felt the pain of that. But unless you're intentional, gospel shaped in changing aspects of your life, particularly if you're a parent or grandparents, you will do the same things to your children that you experienced. Hating it is not enough. Because what is not transformed is transferred, what is not redeemed is repeated. Generation after generation after generation. But Joseph, with all this favoritism going on, doesn't help the situation. Have a look, verse five. Joseph had a dream, and in this dream there, the boys are collecting um, grain, and they, uh, and they get into bunches, and his bunch stands up, and all the other brothers' bunches bow to his. Now, it's one thing to have a dream. It's another to go tell the people who are involved about the dream. But that's what Joseph does. Result? They hated him all the more. Get a life, Joe. I think we're going to bow down to you. But Joseph has another dream. Verse 9. This time, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars are bowing down to me. It's one thing to have a dream. It's another thing to share it. But that's what he does. And the result? They hated him all the more. This hatred in the brothers is brewing, being bottled up. And the thing about hatred, it is never safe. It never just evaporates. It doesn't go. It grows. It is like a champagne bottle, shaking, 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 until a moment arises where it comes out. And one day, that moment came. As Joseph's brothers are in the field, in a distant field, Joseph comes towards them. You know, it's interesting, there's a global recipe for crime. And on the screen is a picture that sort of symbolises this. This is a global recipe for crime across the world. No matter what type of crime it is, here's the recipe for it. 10% of crime happens because of a desire, of wanting to do it. The other 10% of crime happens because of ability. They have the ability to do it, right? But 80% of crime happens because there is an opportunity to do it, which tells you something about the human heart, doesn't it? The reason why we don't do things that we shouldn't do most of the time is because we do not have the opportunity to do it, because the police are watching. Someone keep us accountable. The cameras are on, right? That tells you a bit about the human heart. Opportunity. When given the chance... Evil things happen. It's interesting. When did Cain kill Abel? When they're out in the field, alone. No one was there. When do the brothers take the opportunity to deal with their brother Joseph? When dad's not there. Verse 19. Here comes that dreamer. Notice they don't name him. They dehumanize him. Verse 20, come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns, these wells, and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. This hatred leads them to wanting to kill their own brother. Better he not exist than be around. So warped and wicked is their thinking that it becomes acceptable. Except for one, Reuben. One of the brothers said, well, how about we don't kill him, we just throw him into a well, right, An Assistant, and just teach him a lesson. So that's what they do. Verse 23, when Joseph came to his brothers, they punched him? No. They hit him? No. What do they do? They stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing. Isn't that interesting? It is no accident of the first thing they grab, the first thing they latch onto is the very thing the symbol of their favouritism, the thing that they hate the most. They grab that first, and then they grab Joseph. And they threw him into a cistern, and the cistern was empty. There was no water in it, it says, verse 24. Can I just say this? Joseph may have been naive, overconfident, annoying in sharing the dreams, right? But it never excuses abuse like this. If you're a husband in the room, married, despite how annoying your wife may be at times, exasperating she may be, she may even hit you in anger, but it never excuses you hitting her. If you're a boss and there's people in your team and there's people in your team who really, oh, they get you up the wrong way, or they're lazy or incompetent, it is never an excuse to publicly berate them. To a grandparent, a parent, looking after children, that child may really annoy you, right? Tantrums, frustrated. It is never, ever okay to assault them because the position you have is one of power. And no matter what happens in your channel, yes, you are angry and frustrated in the right ways, not upon people in the wrong ways. You know what I find the scariest verse in all this chapter is? Verse 25. Because after all they've just done, plotted to kill the by the thrown down the well, it says they sat down to eat their meal. I find that scary, don't you? They are so fixated, not on the guilt or the questioning or any remorse. They're so fixated on their stomach. They just want lunch. They've moved on. And if you have experienced any abuse, any evil things that have happened to you, so often it feels like the perpetrators do not care. They've done this and just moved on for lunch. And it can feel like God is the same, that He doesn't care. God hates sin. He does not cause it, but he does not condone it. And it may feel the perpetrator does not care, but know this, God does. He is not having lunch. How do we know that? Well, we've got to keep reading. Verse 28. So when Midian merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Mishalites, who took him to Egypt. In other words, he's sold into slavery, heading to Egypt. Now, can I ask, How do you think Joseph would respond if you heard the words, hey, Joe, God loves you and got a wonderful plan for your life? In this moment, he may give you a death stare, right? He's thinking, where's God? And you're kind of right to ask that question because if you notice in 37, God is not really mentioned in this chapter. He's largely absent. And you think... Maybe the writer Moses, maybe he forgot. Maybe he forgot to add guidance to this chapter. But it is very intentional. Because there are times in life when it feels like God is absent. Where are you? Look what's happening to me. It feels like there's no master's story. He's not there. But can I just say, do not let your feelings, do not let your experience guide you. Let truth guide you. Because God is sovereignly in control over all circumstances, even the most horrendous. And though he may not be verbally mentioned. He is still there. And you can see him in the small details. Like it just so happened that Reuben was there amongst the brothers with the idea of throwing down a well and not kill him. It just so happened that the well they threw him down was empty and he didn't drown. It just so happened that Judah, one of the other brothers, later grew a conscience to not kill him but sell him for some money. It just so happened that the slave traders that they sold him were heading down to Egypt of all places this story it may feel like it's absent of an author but it is not Well, people plan for evil God is still in control and can bring about good when the story kicks off again in chapter 39 things change because it's interesting the Lord is mentioned a lot have a look verse 1 chapter 39 says this now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt Potiphar An Egyptian, who's one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who took taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of the Egyptian master. It's entering five times in five verses the phrase, the Lord was with Joseph, is mentioned. The Lord was with Joseph. Even though he's in a country he didn't know. In a culture which was very foreign, in a language he did not speak doing work, he didn't really know what he was doing, but there the Lord was with him. Even his pagan boss, Potiphar, he noticed something different about you, jo, that The Lord's with you. Because the way he went about his work, he could be trusted which is such a precious attribute. I mean, Joseph knew that God was trustworthy, and he reflected that in the way that he conducted himself. That Potiphar didn't need to micromanage him, but he could trust him. And Joseph goes from slave to in charge of the second in charge in all of Egypt. And it seems like, well, things are turned around for Joseph. Joseph. Maybe at this point you say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But have a look what happens next. Verse 6. Now Joseph was well built. You know what the Hebrew translation really is, what that means is? He's got a six pack, right? He's well built. He's got a six pack and he's handsome, right? Two things, well built and handsome. He's got his mum DNA, Rachel. You know, she was good looking. He is too. I just said, there's nothing wrong with being good looking. But it does come with responsibility, like wealth, right? After a while, verse 7, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come come to bed with me. It's interesting, Potiphar noticed Joseph's character. Potiphar's wife noticed Joseph's looks and says those alluring words, hey, why don't you you come to bed with me? Now, Joseph, a young fit, man and she's a woman that wants him that's interested the temptation would have been immense and it's interesting remember joseph's far from home at this point he's a long way from home his dad's not there his family's not there everything well god's the god of the promised land i'm not in that anymore maybe god's not here when you're away from your support trucks, it's amazing how temptation grows even more so because it feels like no one's there, so I'll get away with it. I mean, where did the prodigal son squander his wealth? In a distant land. That's why gap years or working or travelling for work, these are moments of extra temptation for you because it can feel like no one knows. But verse 8, Joseph said no. Now you think that would be enough. Temptation, crisis averted. But verse 10, she came back day after day with that same proposition, come to bed with me. You know, it's easy to overcome temptation when it's a one-hit wonder. But when it's again and again, it's amazing how all sorts of justifications pop into your head. You think, well, it's happening again and again. Maybe God's trying to tell me something. He wants me to do it. You know, maybe he's given me permission. Or you think, well, who else is going to know? I mean, verse 11, there's no other households and the servants in, the, in that time, right? So... It's just us. We'll keep it between us. It's a little our little secret. It's a, every justifiable human reason pops up when you face temptation. And can I say, in a room this like, there are some of you here right now who are in this situation. Whether you're single like Joseph or married like Potiphar's wife, the temptation to commit adultery is there. And, re- and some of you, you're beginning that attraction with someone that you should not person in the office, that friends, maybe even that member of church where she finds you attractive. She thinks you're funny. She believes in you. But you or her are married. You think, well, he's interested in me. I mean, my husband's always at work, but he... He listens. He seems to love me. I mean, who's going to know? It's just going to be us two. We'll keep it secret. If that is you, friends, can I just say that is a very dangerous place to be. Do what Joseph does. He holds on to one question. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Because in adultery, someone always gets hurt. Whether it's the spouse, the kids, the family, the community. And Joseph knows that trust takes years to build and can go in a second. But ultimately, he knows it'll be a betrayal of God. He's experienced wickedness from others, he does not want to do wicked to God. And so what does Joseph do? He runs. He flees sexual immorality. And can I say, if that is you in the situation right now, the best thing for you to do is to do the same. Better for you to leave the job than commit adultery. Better for you to walk away, even though it may cost you the consequences, it's better for that, friends, if that is you. Joseph does not give in to temptation again and again and again and again. He is obedient. And we think maybe at this point we say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Look what you've done. But as the story goes, as Potiphar returned home, there was his wife with... Joseph's cloak, his underwear, as it were, in a hand. It's not the first time Joseph's clothes have been used against him. But verse 19, when his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And all of a sudden, as things were going great, Now you think God would reward him for his faithful obedience, wouldn't you? You think, I mean, he's just done what God said. Again and again he said no, no, no. He was very much above reproach. And then this happened? And it does prompt you to ask a question. When do you obey? Are we obeying for you or for God? Because the aftermath of obedience when it comes to resisting temptation is exposing. Because after the temptation comes a greater temptation. That is to feel abandoned from God. Because you feel like at the end of the day I'm obeying because God you owe me one. But not so for Joseph. It's interesting. There's no resentment in his voice. There's no anger. But verse 20 it says, while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favour in the eyes of the prison warden. See, he knew that God was not like his dad. His dad showed him favour because of what he'd done and rewarded him so. But his father in heaven, despite what he'd done, graciously and kindly showed him favour. You know, Joseph's story is a rollercoaster one and it does not end there. And while in prison, he meets a cupbearer, someone who would sip the wine before Pharaoh would drink it so it's not poison. And he's in prison. And he has a dream. And Joseph interprets that dream and says, hey, you're going to be released one day. And lo and behold, he is released. And Joseph says, hey, when you get out there in the freedom, remember me. And the cupbearer says, I will. And he doesn't. Joseph's forgotten and spends longer in prison. Joseph's story is a roller coaster one. Starts off well, abused by his family, can't trust them. Gets a position, things are going well, Potiphar's of his house, treated guilty though innocent. Things go down. They're in prison, he's remembered. Ah. If your story is anything like Joseph's story, you know this roller coaster. One moment things are going great and the next not. And to be honest, you may be thinking, how in a million years could I hold on to that phrase, God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life? But Joseph's story is here for you so that you would know, friends, the Lord is with you, whether it's the high mountaintops or the low valleys, that he does love you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And there's two ways in which you've got to see it. The first is this. When life goes bad, really bad, we naturally and normally question, does God love me? And we do that because we have this innate built understanding that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. So when bad things happen in your life, you have this thing of, I must have done something wrong. I must be punished. If I'm experiencing that, God mustn't love me. But you look at Joseph... Has he done anything wrong? No. I mean, you can't really fault the guy. He's innocent. And yet he experiences horrible things. In fact, the more he experiences horrible things, the more it says the Lord was with him. Karma does not work. That's true for Joseph. But it's also true for the greater Joseph. Jesus Christ, who was completely innocent, perfect in every way, didn't do a single thing wrong. He was tempted in every way, but didn't sin, didn't give in. And did he have a wonderful life? No. Beaten, mocked, rejected, a man of sorrows. And yet God said, his father said, this is my son who I'm well pleased. Now we might say, yeah, but you look at Jesus and, We know why he suffered. There was purpose to it. Like Joseph, the saving of many lives, right? We're all of Jesus because of the, the plan that Jesus went through. But what about me? Why am I going through these things? And the answer is, we don't really know. But it doesn't mean there's not purpose in it. We just don't know yet. But what we do know is when we experience the horrors of life, if you look at the Lord Jesus Christ, the answer cannot be that he does not love you. But the second thing is this, friends, what this story tells us, is the Lord is with us. And you look at Joseph's story, and the only comfort he had was those five words, the Lord is with me. And friends, the sign that God is with you is not your success. It's not even you resisting temptation. You know what the sign that the Lord is with you is? Jesus Christ. John Stott wrote this story. It's called The Long Silence. Let me read it to you. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered before God. And there were some groups near the front who talked, not with cringing shame, but with anger. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? The words came from a thin, starving young girl. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. In another group, a man lowered his collar of his shirt, revealing an ugly rope burn on his neck. What about this? I was hung for no crime, for no reason other than the colour of my skin. All across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had their complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in the world. How lucky God was, they said, to live in heaven were all the sweetness and light, no weeping, no fear, no hunger, no hatred. What did God know of all that humans had been forced to endure in this world? So each of these groups sent forth a leader, chosen because he or she had suffered the most. A Jewish person, a black person, a person from Hiroshima, a person with cancer, several with various forms of disabilities. At last they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. They pronounced that before God they were qualified, Sorry, they pronounced before God could qualify to be their judge, he would have to experience what they'd experienced. Their decision was that God would have to be sentenced today, sentenced to live on earth and to live as a man who would suffer. Let him be born a Jew. Let him know what it's like to be hungry. Let his work be so difficult that even his family members think he's crazy. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges. Let him feel excruciating pain. Let him be convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. Let him see what it means to be so terribly alone and let him die. And let him die beyond a shadow of a doubt. As each leader pronounced the portion that he or she would add to the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the crowd. Yes, yes, it is only fair, it's only right if he would judge us. He must first face what we faced. And then when the last finished pronouncing their sentence, there was a long silence. No one dared utter another word. No one could even move. For suddenly it dawned upon them all, that God had already served his sentence and that God would not judge no one in whose shoes he had not already walked in first. The master storyteller sent his one and only son into our broken and tragic story. For you and for me to know that the Lord is with us I mean, Joseph was a dreamer, but he could never have dreamed that the Lord would walk in similar shoes that he walked, that the plan for God's life, the story He chose, would be oh so similar to him so that he would know, that we would know, the Lord is truly with us. The plan that Jesus chose out of all plans. The story that he chose out of all stories was awful. But he did it so that the eternal plan, the eternal story of yours would be wonderful. Where there would be no more roller coasters of up, down, up, down. Moments of sweetness followed by moments of bitterness. Moments of tears of happiness followed by tears of pain that abuse by those you trusted, dysfunction in families, favoritism, temptation, and hatred would be a thing of the past. And one day Jesus will return when your story and the story of this world comes to an end. And then that day, when your eternal life begins, ah, we will see that God truly and fully loves us And did have a wonderful plan for our life. Let me pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for the story of Joseph. Truth be told, we have no idea what it was really like for Joseph in each of those chapters, in each of those experiences, in each of those moments. But we can only guess. But you know. It is so easy to know what it's like as we see the end of it and read it from a distance. But we thank you that we know this, that you were with him. And no matter what chapter we are in of our life, whether it's a moment where we feel like things are going great or it's the worst it's ever been, we know that you are with us. You have not abandoned us. You have not forgotten us, but you are with us, Lord Jesus. You've been where we've been. You've walked where we have walked so that the plan of our life would not be chaos, would not be empty, would not be hopeless, but one that is wonderful because you are working out good amongst the broken. We thank you, Lord, that you do love us, and do have a wonderful plan for our life. Thanks be to Jesus. Amen.